Hi, everybody. It's Josh Barrow, and we've got another great episode of Serious Trouble for you this week. For free subscribers, we have a discussion of Tucker Carlson's firing from Fox News Channel and how that may be interrelated with the litigation that just settled there with Dominion Voting Systems, with Fox paying an enormous settlement to settle that defamation case. We also talk about E. Jean Carroll, whose civil case uh, for rape is going to trial against former President Donald Trump. They've done jury selection. They've done opening statements. We take a look at what we're likely to see in that trial. Uh, So that's in today's free episode. For paying subscribers, we additionally talk about Mike Lindell, uh, who is on the hook for a $5 million payment uh, because he asked to be proved wrong about a trove of data that he had and whether it was about Chinese hacking to steal the 2020 election. An arbitration panel found that Mike Lindell was indeed proved wrong, and then he needs to pay $5 million to Robert Zeidman, who is a uh, Republican computer forensics analyst in Nevada. We'll see if he ever gets that money. Uh, we talk about Hunter Biden, uh, who was uh, embroiled in this sort of seedy custody-related dispute in Arkansas um, that has is tying in with his other legal problems. Uh, there are some financial statements on that infamous laptop uh, that the mother of Hunter Biden's child would like to bring into those proceedings. His attorneys say, well, we don't even know if that's his laptop. And so the judge in this case said, okay, well, bring him to me and let me ask him whether it's his laptop or not. So Ken and I talk about the way that a custody proceeding can interrelate uh, in a damaging way with a uh, with a criminal investigation. Uh, and then we have a further update on Afro Man. We have a bona fide expert uh, who wrote in with an answer to a question we posed last week about whether Afro Man could face a completely different kind of legal difficulty having to do with intellectual property. So if you want to hear all of that, I encourage you to go to seriousTrouble.show. You can become a paying subscriber for $6 a month or $60 a year, uh, and you'll get that whole conversation. You'll get every full episode of this show, more than 40 episodes a year. So we hope you'll join us over there at seriousTrouble.show. Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Ken, so last week we had ill-timed slash well-timed show. We had to throw out our first version of the taping to then make a new one discussing the enormous $787 million settlement in the Fox Dominion case. And there's been one key follow-on news story that is closely related to the case, although it's not quite clear yet how closely, which is Fox News' firing of Tucker Carlson. And so we don't want to talk about this from a media criticism perspective. That's not within our wheelhouse here. But I do want to talk a little bit about how this might be related to the litigation and some things it might tell us about how litigation affects large organizations when they're put under stress for it. So I guess, first of all, some of the theories about why Tucker Carlson got fired have to do with the idea that there was something that happened over a period of months or longer that had Fox management very upset with him and that they were waiting until after the lawsuit was finished in order to fire him. How does ongoing litigation interact with a desire you might have to terminate an employee who might be prominently involved with that litigation? Well, uh, we lawyers would say that it creates tension, Josh, uh, meaning <laughs> that there are sort of competing instincts and, and competing motivations. On the one hand, if you have somebody who is causing trouble in the organization, maybe exposing you to liability for their actions, you want to get rid of them and stop that uh, liability from happening. On the other hand, uh, terminating someone can be seen as sort of a 
admission that they did something wrong and that there were uh, bad things happening in the organization. And moreover, it can turn them against you. So it's not uncommon for an organization to fire somebody and they get mad and they say, fine, well, I'm going to go to the other side and tell them all the deep, dark internal secrets and uh, testify for them that, yes, you know, everything inside the organization was a shit show and so on and so forth. So you've got these competing things going on and it's fairly common to do what Fox apparently did, which is wait for litigation to be over uh, before kicking him out. Some of the press reporting on this has been quite interesting about exactly what happened to create this rift between management at Fox, you know, Rupert Murdoch and his son, Lachlan Murdoch, and Suzanne Scott, who runs the Fox News Network, and their most prominent and I believe most highly paid star, about $20 million a year, Tucker Carlson is being paid. And I say is because the news reports indicate that they he's still under contract and he's still getting paid. And so the Wall Street Journal, I think, had the best story on this. Ironically, the Wall Street Journal also within the Murdoch media empire reporting on a, a sister company. And so they talk about some stuff that came to light in Discovery in this case, uh, where you had Tucker Carlson saying very negative things about management at Fox. And some of those we've seen publicly, complaints about business and editorial decisions, about the call on Arizona and that sort of thing. And he blames, you know, liberals in the organization and, and upper management that doesn't know what it's doing. The Wall Street Journal also says that there is a senior executive whom he called a cut in a text message. And they describe this scene where the lawyers are gathering with Tucker Carlson. And they tell him there's good news. The judge has agreed that that'll be subject to the protective order and they won't have to publicly disclose that text message. And that Tucker Carlson basically says, oh, I want the world to know how I feel about this executive. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want that kept under wraps. Uh, so it's clear that there's that tension there that got brought to the fore. The Wall Street Journal story also describes uh, that Tucker was really upset with how Fox's PR operation was handling the Dominion lawsuit. Tucker uh, spoke about Sidney Powell on his show and his efforts to book her on the show to explain exactly the details and the information behind the wild allegations that she was making about vote theft and algorithms, and that she didn't provide that information and, and told him to stop calling. And he basically, he sharply criticized her, at least at one point. Tucker Carlson felt he should be getting more credit for having pushed back on some of the election conspiracy theories that got broadcast by other hosts on the network. Uh, and so clearly, he was very upset about that. And one, one thing I found interesting about all of this is that even though it, it's correct that Tucker Carlson was not the person who exposed Fox to the greatest legal liability here. You had Maria Bartiromo, Lou Dobbs, who did get fired. Uh, Janine Pirro, you had other hosts who acted more irresponsibly with regard to the specific issue that Dominion was suing over um, and created more legal liability for Fox. Tucker was not the most liable person in that regard. It seems to me like you could have a lot of situations like this where you have litigation and it causes infighting among the people in the organization that's being sued, where they fight over whose fault something really was, who's getting the blame, and that that can cause negative effects for the organization that go beyond any settlement or judgment. Yes, and, and you have to keep in mind that when you're talking about an organization being sued, that there's sort of this, this issue of collective knowledge and collective responsibility, where the fact that one of the people they shoved onto the air knew better isn't necessarily a good thing mm -hmm. for Fox. So Tucker's theory that they should have pointed out that I knew better and I asked some tough questions and didn't go along with the entire Trump narrative is not necessarily a good fact for Fox, because that shows that someone inside Fox <laughs> knew well enough to be pushing back. And it actually isn't all that great for Tucker either, because on other occasions, he gullibly 
pushed the narrative and he's basically confessing that he knew better than to do that. So yeah, all this internal bickering can be terrible for the case for defending it. It can be terrible for internal morale and for, uh, you know, lines of authority and and keeping things going the way uh, you want to as a matter of policy. Certainly just having uh, upper level uh, talent openly uh, disparaging and attacking management is bad. Although I will point out, Josh, the Wall Street Journal only says that he called her the C word. I mean, uh, it could have been calm, for all we know. <laughs> but um, I don't think it was calm. Okay. So anyway, th- this is something where you ultimately have to make a decision. You know, is this 800-pound gorilla someone who makes us so much money that we have to put up with absolutely anything they do? Or at some point, just to keep the institution from shaking apart, we got to get rid of him. Mm -hmm. And then there's also this matter of this other lawsuit brought by Abby Grossberg, who used to be a booker for Tucker Carlson tonight. Uh, She sued for uh, sex-based discrimination and various other claims against Fox. And her lawsuit is is full of stories about the sexist environment that prevailed at Tucker Carlson tonight. And, you know, discussing which of the two female candidates for governor of Michigan was hotter uh, in the the, editorial meeting, or I think it may actually have literally been which one was more fuckable. The... uh, some sort of like imagery of Nancy Pelosi with a plunging neckline. And the funny thing about this is this is the least surprising thing ever. And so the idea that, you know, the reason that Tucker Carlson got fired is they discovered that he had this environment prevailing in the in the production of his show, and either that that was against the standards they wished to follow or that it exposed them to legal liability. I mean, it's just, you know... Th- this Grossberg lawsuit feels like the sort of thing that you could settle for seven figures. It's not like, uh, or, I, or I don't know if you can, if you think that that number is about right, but it's definitely a much smaller matter than the Dominion lawsuit. And so people have talked about this Dominion settlement where they're paying half of Fox Corporation's annual profits. I like the bulwark literally called it a parking ticket. And that's crazy. That thing is not a cost of doing business. But this lawsuit, this much more routine lawsuit about a hostile workplace at Fox and uh, and a sexist work environment, that feels like the sort of thing Fox would have said was a cost of doing business. I I just don't buy it as that's the reason that they fired Tucker Carlson. No, and Fox has a a long history of having to pay big bucks uh, as a result of the the behavior of its big stars. And this does not, I mean, it's unacceptable, but it's not surprising unacceptable. It's predictable unacceptable. I mean, you would be surprised to hear that Tucker Carlson tonight isn't a giant douchey frat house uh, that would sort of just like fight with our understanding of reality. I think you're right that that's like a settlement in the low millions uh, or lower. And I think you're right that Fox has decided that that sort of thing is the cost of doing business because because the types of personalities that appeal to their viewers are also the types of personalities uh, who engage in behavior like that. I mean, the other thing is if the Abby Grossberg lawsuit were the reason for Tucker Carlson's termination, presumably they'd be trying to fire him for cause like they did with figures like Bill O'Reilly. Um, right. The nature of the allegations isn't the same type of sexual harassment that we saw in some of those cases. Um, but also, I don't, you know, the Tucker has a very expensive contract that as far as we can tell, they're paying out. As I've been discussing this with Sarah Fay, our, our producer this week, one thing that she keeps correctly pointing out is that Fox is a family business run by a guy who's 92 years old, I mean, and his son, and there's, you know, there's professional staff, and there's news reporting indicating that Suzanne Scott and Lachlan Murdoch were involved in this decision to fire Tucker. I I guess just worth remembering that sometimes organizations make decisions, especially under strain like this, that are not necessarily profit-maximizing decisions, and it could just be the execs got mad about some interpersonal things with Tucker Carlson. 
Oh, I think that's exactly right. I, I think, you know, the the rich are different than we are. <laughs> and uh, they've got these gigantic, uncountable piles of money. And I could think that if I were super rich and I had to work with Tucker Carlson, at some point I might be willing to drop a billion dollars just to tell him to fuck off. Uh, <laughs> so I think that's very possibly that they just don't want to deal with this anymore. They didn't want this sort of stuff in their life. As amazing as it sounds, there was too much negativity for Fox News. <laughs> I do want to talk a little bit about some of the reaction to the nearly $800 million settlement payment and how this termination interacts with your sort of Kenny Raincloud uh, talking points, and especially we're in the email that went out with last week's show, where a lot of people seemed upset that the, the Fox Dominion litigation didn't end with Fox having to make some sort of on-air apology. Can you sum up what Kenny Raincloud had to say there? Yeah, I, I was seeing a lot of online chatter about how disappointed people were in Dominion how they should have stuck by and uh, litigated so that Fox had to do an on-air apology and retraction, and they could be humiliated in court. And the problem is people don't have a firm grip of what litigation actually gives you. You can't get a judge to order you to apologize uh, or to make a retraction. And you see that in lots of complaints demanding an apology, but that's not a thing. Um, that would violate the First Amendment. Uh, the most the judge can do is hit you with a gigantic judgment. There's not going to be any sort of mandated apology or mandated retraction. You can negotiate for one and see if the other side is willing to give it in exchange for not having to pay as much money, but it's not something you get by legal force. Also, I think the extent to which uh, Fox would really be humiliated by this stuff coming out in open court as opposed to in summary judgment motions or anywhere else is probably overstated and is frankly expecting a little too much of the American audience to, to follow trials closely. Uh, so, well, and also a lot of the humiliation has already happened. A lot of it has already happened, and everyone who's going to be moved has been moved, and anyone who hasn't been is never going to be moved. So I don't really know that it does that much good. So I think the this is kind of the the deus ex machina thing where we want the legal system to come in and rescue us from all the shitty things in our culture, and uh, it's just not going to happen. That's not what the legal system does, regrettably. It moves big piles of money around, uh, but it does not fix cultural problems. So uh, this is a cultural problem, and uh, I think people are unreasonable to expect Dominion to fix it. We talked last week about that the purpose of this award is compensation and also deterrence, that one of the reasons that you have punitive damages is it's supposed to deter people from committing torts against each other. And so in this instance, the deterrence that Fox News faces about its future actions or the competitors might face, there's the risk of, of having to pay out a really large settlement like this. There is still ongoing litigation. This was the big kahuna, but there is litigation from Smartmatic um, against Fox. But I think in terms of if we're adding up the reasons that Fox and, and others might be deterred in the future, I think we need to add on all the collateral effects that have come in from this litigation to Fox. I mean, if the idea was supposed to be, well, yeah, we paid out this huge settlement, uh, but at least we kept our tie with our audience by telling them the lie they really wanted to hear. And, you know, it helped us box Newsmax out. And it was all worth it, even if we had to pay $800 million. I think that's a pretty thin theory in certain ways. But one thing you see here is it caused this internal turmoil and led to the termination of their most prominent primetime star in a way that is 
at least somewhat likely to undermine that ongoing business relationship they have with their audience. So it's not even clear that they got the thing that they put all the money out here for. And that's one more reason, if you're Fox management or management at another network to look at this and say, gee, that's going to be a real mess. And I don't expect that we're going to come out ahead by doing this thing. Well, I mean, this is veering into the uh, media criticism we promised we wouldn't do, Josh. But, I mean, Fox has been having trouble with the audience for a while, much as uh, Republican candidates have been primaried from the right. Fox is being attacked from the right by other media outlets that are even more shameless and willing to go even further into this nuttiness. And they're continuing to lose some of their audience to those groups. And this is just going to accelerate that because... Uh, they're going to be seen as having caved uh, to uh, uh, the evil leftists uh, who are you know, fixing America's elections. Although some of those entities face their own legal exposure from Dominion and Smartmatic, which is something that I'm sure we'll be covering in future weeks. Let's talk about E. Jean Carroll, uh, her civil case against former President Donald Trump over uh, her rape allegation against him and also over uh, claims that he defamed her by denying that allegation. That case has gone to trial now in Manhattan. There's a nine-member jury. I hadn't heard of this before, Ken. I'd heard of six-person juries and 12-person juries. I didn't know you could have a jury of nine. Oh, yeah. It, it varies with jurisdiction and state and type of case. You have 12-person juries, six-person juries, everything in between. And so as we're taping on Wednesday morning, the trial started on Tuesday with jury selection, and then they had opening statements from each side. And so uh, the the statements uh, first on behalf of E. Jean Carroll from her attorney, Sean Crowley, is basically describing that you will hear from E. Jean Carroll about her allegation, but they have various supporting information that they're going to provide. They're going to provide testimony from a friend whom she confided with shortly after the, the events that she alleges here. There's going to be testimony from women who have made somewhat similar allegations against Donald Trump, and that they're going to show that he's lied about other aspects of this, that he lied about going to the department store, that he lied about having met E. Jean Carroll. Uh, and so this sounds like like, you know, when you're talking about an event that occurred is alleged to have occurred 30 years earlier, the sort of case you have to build around the idea that people should believe that uh, that this is a true allegation. Yeah, I mean, th this is a not a typical approach to a uh, he said, she said, no witness type of incident uh, without, you know, the CSI evidence that uh, Americans have come to expect. And both attorneys are doing an excellent professional job in putting the, the best possible approach to that. It's notable particularly, I think, that uh, Trump's attorney, um, Joe uh, Tacopina, is taking a smart approach to this, not being Trumpish at all, basically saying it's, you know, it's fine if you think my guy's a colossal jerk, but, you know, what is the actual evidence here? And it doesn't make sense. And he's pointing out things like, uh, you know, Ms. Carroll can't remember the exact date. She can't even remember the year. They're supporting circumstances, he says, that shows that she's not credible. Like, you know, why wouldn't there have been anyone present at this department store, anyone around? So he's he's doing everything he can with the facts and doing a professional as opposed to bombastic job with it. Carol's attorney, on the other hand, is using the, I think he's going to be able to use the, the force of her personality and her credibility and some of the surrounding circumstances like her prior statements to people. Why isn't it hearsay if she told 
someone else about this event shortly after it happened. Why is that admissible? Uh, well, Josh, there's something called a prior consistent statement. So if there's an accusation that you've fabricated a statement recently uh, based on some motivation, you can then make admissible a prior consistent statement that you made to somebody about the same thing. So if uh, since they're saying that E. Jean Carroll is only making this up because she hates Trump because of you know what he said since he started running for president, uh, that makes it admissible that 30 years ago she confided to somebody that this had happened. We talked a, a few weeks ago about some pretrial rulings uh, from Judge Lewis Kaplan, who's presiding over this case. And one of the key things was that he allowed in a variety of evidence that sort of establishes a behavior pattern for, for Donald Trump. The, he allowed in the Access Hollywood tape, and he allowed in uh, – there will be a couple of witnesses who will testify who also allege that uh, Donald Trump committed some sort of sexual assault or sexual abuse toward them over, over the decades. And so Joe Tacopina, the, the former president's attorney, the way he addressed this in his opening statement was basically to say they're talking about all of this stuff because of their lack of evidence around this specific allegation and basically don't get distracted by that. And so I'm interested – I mean, the point of, a, of allowing this evidence about a prior pattern is it's supposed to be relevant for evaluating whether the accusation at issue in the case is a true accusation, right? Are you allowed to go up there and, and tell the jury basically they shouldn't pay attention to the stuff that the judge has decided to admit? Oh, of course you can. Um, it, it, that's just about telling, or telling the jury uh, you know, what's important and what's not. The jury's not required to believe or accept or find relevant the evidence just because the judge is letting it in. Now, I would say that Takapina's uh, statement is a little close to argument uh, for an opening statement, which traditionally is just supposed to be a statement of what the evidence will show and not a time to argue about the evidence. Uh, but, you know, that's a rule often broken and, and many lawyers get away with it. Uh, so, yeah, but that's the classic move for a trial lawyer when you have all this other acts evidence is to say, you know, they're just trying to distract you from the lack of evidence on the core of what really happened here. When we think about a trial over a rape accusation, normally we think of a criminal trial and a need to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Here, it's it's just which side the jury finds more credible. They can, you can win with 51%. With right. It's preponderance of the evidence. That's, I mean, that's remarkably low, actually. Uh, yeah. And particularly because the way jurors make decisions, uh, uh, they they tend to kind of buy into a story and then, you know, think about the evidence in a way that supports their viewpoint. So would you say that bodes ill for Trump here? I think it's a little early to say. I, I'd like to see descriptions of E. Jean Carroll's testimony, so see how she does. She is the witness in the case. And see how the rest of it goes in. But you just can't tell what a jury is going to do. This is a jury that probably is not predisposed to love uh, Donald Trump. But on the other hand, juries react in unpredictable ways. And sometimes uh, some juries are very sort of professional and matter of fact that, you know, we just have to see if there's evidence or not. There's certainly enough evidence to find him liable if they choose to believe Eugene Carroll. The former president is not attending this trial, and uh, his lawyers have framed that in terms of it's extremely disruptive to bring him into Lower Manhattan and the Secret Service and all of that. What do you make of the decision for him not to show up here? Is it ever a good idea for one of the parties to skip the trial? Well, Josh, first of all, I just isn't that the first word you think of when you think of Donald Trump? Thoughtful, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just very 
very considerate to uh, the people in the area. Josh, that's a tricky question. On the one hand, one conventional wisdom is that you want the client there to show the client cares, to humanize your side of the case, to show that there's a stake in this, a person in this. On the other hand, if you've got a client who has behavioral issues, then sometimes <laughs> it's a bad thing to have them there. I think the possibility of Trump keeping a straight face is low. Uh, I think the possibility of him acting out and uh, being an ass clown is is fairly high. That can go badly with a jury. Um, it can you know drive him to make bad decisions. He may abruptly tell. There's no telling what he might do because he tends to be so out of control. So probably not having him there is the smart thing when you've got such an uncontrolled client. That's the end of this week's free episode of Serious Trouble. Again, if you want to hear about Mike Lindell and the $5 million payment that he has to make that arbitrators said, you were indeed proved wrong, Mike, and your proved Mike wrong contest where you offered $5 million prize, you have to pay out that prize. We talk about that and we talk about arbitration more generally. We have a conversation about Afro Man under the boardwalk and copyright. And we have a conversation about Hunter Biden and uh, when you really have to find ways to make sure uh, that one of your seedy legal entanglements does not cause trouble in one of your other other CD legal entanglements. So again, if you want to hear that, go to SeriousTrouble.show, become a paying subscriber, uh, and you can hear that and every full episode of this show that we put out nearly weekly. Thanks for listening.